0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Kids are struggling with mental health at alarming rates.
1: We are seeing more visits to our emergency department for mental health concerns than we have ever seen in our existence. We have so many kids now in crisis, we don't have enough services for them.
0: There is some new money, how will it be spent? Then a sign the pandemic is easing... Dancing has returned to a century-old hall in Denver, hand-to-hand, cheek-to-cheek at the Turnverein.
2: Oh, it feels spectacular. And, you know, I wasn't sure I was going to remember how to dance. It's been almost a year and a half. But as soon as I was led through my first steps, it's like I automatically followed. It's like the body remembered.
0: And a pet-filled finalist for a Colorado Book Award,
3: Colorado Public Radio remains committed to taking you on daily explorations into the world of music and into the news of the day, bringing you more backstories and perspectives with an expanded schedule. Your support ensures a strong foundation for the compelling coverage and storytelling that you will continue to rely on. A popular way to support? Start an evergreen membership and commit to giving a little each month. Colorado Public Radio is powered by you. Give because the news and music matter at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. You hear state of emergency and you might think of natural disasters, but it is also how doctors in Colorado are referring to the state of children's mental health here, exacerbated by the pandemic. There is new public funding to help But these issues run deep, as we'll hear from experts and from a young person. 12-year-old Kate Hartman has had anxiety since kindergarten, and she works with Children's Hospital Colorado as a young mental health advocate. Kate, thank you so much for being with us.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: Kari Eckert of Lakewood is also in our studio. Her 15-year-old son, Robbie, died by suicide in 2018. And we are grateful that you are here, Kari, to talk about your work since.
3: Thank you for the invitation, Ryan.
0: And the director of psychology training at Children's is Jenna Glover, who holds a PhD. Jenna, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ryan. So, Kate, as I said, your struggles started around kindergarten. What are some of your earliest memories of those struggles?
4: Well, my earliest memories of the struggles are... Um, when I was younger, I had a really hard time controlling myself and my impulses, and I would just do everything, and I would ignore anything everybody said to me. Um, I would do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted it, no matter what anybody said.
0: And was that a source of eventual stress for you, or what? How did that feel?
4: Um, I believe it was. Um, I had a hard time making friends because of it, but I eventually learned how to control it. So I guess it went away after time.
0: And what did it mean to struggle with other young people? Like what did that look like at school, for instance?
4: It meant other young people were um, avoiding me and they didn't want to be around me because I just wasn't the neurotypical kid they were used to. And I believe
0: you were diagnosed with ADHD. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So what do you think your darkest days were?
4: My darkest days were probably in third grade when I was bullied repeatedly for years and the bullying reached a climax there and I was just in a terrible place. I felt scared of myself because I felt like I wasn't capable or worthy of anybody's love. And I guess I felt like Nobody would ever want me.
0: Was that true even of your own family? No. You felt that your family wanted you? Yes. That must have helped to some extent. Yes. Uh, As someone who experienced bullying, I know how painful that can be. What sort of form did bullying take?
4: Um, Well, rumors and just taunting and people just being rude all the time.
0: Did you think about suicide?
4: Yes. Um, Yes, I did. I felt like that was the only way to escape, but it wasn't. I could reach out for help, and I did. And I got the help that I needed to really learn acceptance towards myself. Hmm.
0: And did you reach out to your family? Is that who? Yes. Okay. What did that look like? What did that sound like?
4: I told my mom that I was feeling so down, like nobody wanted to be my friend or nobody wanted me around. And that I just felt like I should end my life. And she...
0: You used those words with your parents?
4: Well, not exactly. I was younger then, so probably not as complicated words as I use now.
0: Uh, And they understood this and they helped get you help.
4: Yes. uh, They called my therapist and asked her um, for help. She gave us a little screening um, and decided that I should go to the uh, Children's Hospital Colorado um, Pediatric Mental Health Facility.
0: Was it scary to speak up?
4: Yes. um, It always is. Um, Whenever you're feeling, uh, you always worry that you're going to be rebuffed and that somebody's not going to want to hear it and that you're You always worry that they're going to feel like you're wasting their time.
0: And that they're minimizing what you're feeling. Yes. So how a parent reacts is really important, it sounds like.
4: Yes. Well, minimizing it doesn't help, but maximizing it doesn't help either. Like freaking out over it, like being like, oh my God, what are you, like, why are you feeling this way? And um, that doesn't help at all. It could scare the child um, from telling you more and... Um, I feel like if I, my parents had reacted that way, I, had, I would probably not go back to them if I felt this way again.
0: So an even-keeled approach was really important yes. for you. All right. Jenna Glover, psychologist at Children's. Uh, I wonder how often you see kids struggle as early as, you know, perhaps kindergarten with mental health.
1: Yeah, it's definitely not uncommon, um, especially in the last several years and definitely over the pandemic, that we are seeing younger kids, you know, ages five, six, seven, who are um, already having mental health challenges um, and really, really struggling.
0: Now, in Kate's case, there was help through a therapist, there was help through Children's Hospital. Does that mean then that families of means are just going to be better off Given the state of mental health right now.
1: You know, there there, real, there really is a huge challenge when it comes to access to care and it is disproportionate. And so we just do not have enough services available in the state to support the um, dramatic needs that our children have. And for families who don't have as many resources, it's going to be even more challenging. But honestly, we are in such a state of crisis that even families who do have means are struggling to be connected to these services. So um, top, top down, this is a huge problem. But our most vulnerable, vulnerable populations and people who don't have regular access are definitely um, at the greatest risk.
0: So are you saying that there are fundamentally not enough therapists in Colorado at this point?
1: Yes, there, there are not enough mental health providers. So um, even in places that, that may have money for mental health providers, they're unable to hire them because there are just not enough people um, in the workforce to do this work. We don't have enough here in Colorado. So it's a huge, um, huge problem.
0: So Jenna Glover, again, psychologist at Children's Hospital Colorado, you did make reference to the pandemic. In what ways do you think the pandemic has exacerbated things for young people?
1: I think we were already in a fire and um, the pandemic just was fuel on that fire. And we went from a troubling state to truly a state of crisis. And so one of the things that we saw, um, you know, kids have been going through chronic stress. They've been dealing with unpredictability. Um, A sense of hopelessness has set in for a lot of our kids um, during the last year. And all of that has dramatically impacted their mental health. And so we're seeing double to triple rates um, of anxiety and depression um, compared to pre-pandemic levels. Um, we've seen suicide uh, rates of suicide attempts dramatically increase. We've seen a 40% increase in suicide rates across the country um, this winter compared to last winter. Mm-hmm. So this has been a, a very significant um, event on our kids' mental health and something that we have to pay attention to and address it.
0: Many of them, especially early on in the pandemic, were sort of robbed of the togetherness of a classroom and of their routines. I do wonder to what extent young people are also taking on the burdens that their parents may be facing. And so I'm thinking about joblessness. I'm thinking about that uh, kind of economic worry or maybe worry about one's health. Do you think kids are sponges that are absorbing that?
1: Uh, Absolutely. They are. I mean, our, our kids are, we call them co-regulators. So they, um, they manage their emotions, how we manage our emotions. And when our levels of stress are much higher, their levels of stress are going to be much higher. And so not only is there uncertainty in their life, but to what you just alluded, some of them have had family members lose jobs. Some of them have lost family members. So their whole lives have been um, upended and the family system is being stressed in a way that we have never seen before. And that has a major impact on kids resiliency.
0: Kari Ecker, you founded Robbie's Hope Uh, After your 15 year old son died by suicide in 2018, and um, this organization now works on suicide prevention, how do you think you can make the biggest difference?
3: Oh, that's a very good question that a lot of people are trying to figure out, especially here in Colorado. And there's not a one answer to that question. And this is, as Jenna mentioned, that this is just the uh, fuel on the fire. We've been trying to um, tackle this for some period of time. Um, And I think we need to allow our young people like Kate to get services and help much, much earlier than the emergency department at Children's Hospital. Mm. We need to teach our kids that it's okay. We're humans. It's okay to have emotion. It's okay to not be okay. Um, Kate mentioned a really, really good point of teaching our young people to not just go to their friends, but to go to an adult. And sometimes, truly, it is not your parent. Sometimes it's we use the term trusted adult. Um, Those people in our community, our teachers, our educators, our coaches. Robbie's Hope is trying to push in the state of Colorado. um, We believe that our educators need to be trained in mental health intervention and crisis management. They aren't right now.
0: Uh, Educators as early as what grades?
3: Kindergarten.
0: Kindergarten. Absolutely. And what should they be on the lookout for? Like what would that training entail?
3: The true signs and symptoms of um, being at um, risk for a mental health condition—they're pretty classic, and they're most people would um, recognize them. But let's um, to start teaching our kids that um, to, it's okay to express their emotions in appropriate ways in the appropriate space. We give our young people uh, the words to identify their emotions, but then suddenly in elementary school, we make it very clear that it's not okay to experience them. It's not okay to express them.
0: Where Where is that message coming from? I'm not sure I remember that message in my own home, so I just want right. to get a finer point on
3: right. it. Right. Well, well, we're in the state of Colorado. Pull up your bootstraps and get over it. We don't talk about who we are and how we feel.
0: I even how, wonder if there's some adults listening now thinking, what is it with kids today? You know, buck up, little camper. Uh, what, what, do we, what do you say when you hear that kind of thing?
3: Oh, that's the last thing that a child wants to hear. A child wants to be heard.
0: Kate, does that resonate?
4: A hundred percent. I've always wanted to be heard my entire life and accepted and understood.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you run into adults who gave you that kind of bootstrap message?
4: Sometimes my teachers would, but not exactly. hmm
0: What sorts of coping skills have you developed when you get sad, when you get glum?
4: Well, I've done something that I um, thoroughly enjoy, like um, hanging out with my sister or just taking a walk or um, to remind me about the good things in life. And I will also just do deep breaths to calm myself. I find that helpful for um, panic attacks and also for um, when I'm sad. It's just helpful all around. But Um,
0: you you needed to know that there were tools in a toolbox that you could turn to.
4: Yeah, Yeah. I definitely did.
0: My sense, Kari, you've been on the program before. And if I remember your story um, properly, you're quite blindsided by your son's suicide.
3: Absolutely. Uh, Robbie was um, never on anyone's radar screen for being at risk for suicide. He was absolutely the opposite My husband and I were at parent-teacher conferences, and we came home to more than a parent's worst nightmare. And we, um, Robbie was a student athlete. He was excelling. Um, We had learned after Robbie's death that other students had actually gone to Robbie with their own suicidal ideation. And he didn't feel comfortable sharing that. He was happy. He had a smile on his face. Um, And if there was anything that we could have changed, it was we would have wanted Robbie to know that um, he could have come to us with anything.
0: And so that's a a message that you now wish you had imparted to him much earlier, much more vocally. Is that what I'm hearing you say?
3: It's complicated. Certainly, you have to trust your gut as a parent and you try to be good role models, Um, But it's okay to be human and to have human emotion. One of our messages at Robbie's Hope is it's okay to not be okay. We as parents, as Jenna mentioned, I mean, um, we are the society that we're living in, we truly need a societal shift to correct the problem of youth mental health and mental illness.
0: Let's bring a fourth voice into our discussion today of young people's mental health. So the chief medical officer at Children's Hospital Colorado is Dr. David Rumbaugh. And doctor, thanks so much for being with us.
5: Thanks, Ryan, for having
0: me. You're a pediatric gastroenterologist. And I understand it was watching kids come into the ER that gave you a sense of their mental health needs. Um, and yet th- those aren't addressed like say, diabetes or leukemia. Uh, reflect on that for me.
5: Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, I, I'm a gastroenterologist uh, by trade, but I'm a pediatrician uh, to start, and um, I care about kids. And uh, the what's really impressed me just in the first part of 2021, especially over the winter, as, as Jenna mentioned earlier, was the... Uh, the volume of kids that were coming in to our emergency department with suicidal ideation and it quickly outstripped the entire state's ability to care for these kids. And so we had kids backing up in our emergency department, waiting, you know, hours to days for the type of acute mental health interventions that they needed. And it's really, you know, I, I, First of all, I'm, I'm just absolutely moved by Kari's story and and by Kate's eloquence. But I heard many similar stories to what Kari is telling, which is kids that, you know, just uh, seemingly fell off the edge, if you will, in terms of their resilience and their ability to cope. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned, Ryan, the fact that, you know, we wouldn't allow this to happen, I think, for other types of medical diagnoses, right? Mm-hmm. So we would never allow kids to spend hours in uh, an emergency department waiting for definitive treatment for leukemia or for pneumonia. Um, but somehow, uh, we, uh, we, we don't have the same mindset around mental health. And, and I think that's a foundational problem that explains a lot of both the upstream and downstream issues that we're dealing with today. I do want
0: to say that in part because of lobbying by Children's Hospital Colorado, state lawmakers set aside about $30 million for youth mental health. The federal government is giving more than 90 million to the state for mental health services, and I understand about 5 million of that is going to be for children and young adults. Uh, I wonder also from a Children's Hospital Colorado, Jenna Glover, how how do you think that money would be best spent? Is it just hiring more people, training more people? Uh, what do you think?
1: I, I think there's a twofold approach to this. So first of all, we have to immediately expand capacities. So there needs to be expansion of dedicated um, beds for kids who are in acute mental health crisis. Um, there needs to be more access to care for families who are in rural parts of the state to um, mental health um, services. So we need to address the immediate concern, but um, we, there's no way we're going to outgrow this in the current state in the current system. And so we do need money that is dedicated to expanding our workforce, um, to recruitment of mental health workers, and to um, getting people involved in the field and being able to retain them here in Colorado. So I think it's a two-part effort. Um, Additionally, better screening needs to be done to catch these kids, especially as we're going into um, the next school year. And so if we can catch a kid early on before their life has been completely impaired, we're going to be able to treat them. We're going to be able to keep them out of the emergency department. We're going to be able to decrease the risk of them losing their life to mental illness. So I think that's another um, avenue in which funds need to be allocated is for screening both at schools and in pediatrician offices because teachers and pediatricians are going to be the most likely people to catch these kids. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to see them until they get caught by those other professionals.
0: You've got Kari Ecker, founder of Robbie's Hope, nodding here. That certainly reflects what we've heard from you earlier, Kari. But it, it does occur to me with all these kids who will be returning to school after the summer. That's an amazing opportunity to do some screening, to, to, to be sensitive, right?
3: Absolutely. I have said for the last two and a half years since losing Robbie, suicide is preventable. And the reason that is, is because mental illness is treatable. And I think what we've learned during the pandemic is that we all have mental health. And that's a really good thing that we can take away from this. We all have mental health and we can do a better job of taking care of our mental health, treating it earlier and earlier.
0: You do train at Robbie's Hope uh, teen volunteers to reach out to other teens.
3: Absolutely. Why do you
0: think that approach is so important?
3: Young people like Kate, we need to empower our young people to use their voice Um, Some of us have lived experience talking about this is important. Removing the stigmas, letting others hear teens. Teens want to listen to teens, young people like young people and that it's okay to not be okay, that there's always hope. Hold on pain ends and that you can Mm. be heard by adults.
0: Pain ends. It's a nice message. This too shall pass kind of thing. Dr. Brumbaugh, where would you like to see these millions invested
5: well, uh, I'll echo some of what Jenna said. We need uh, supports for families that are in crisis and kids that are in crisis right now and an expanded armamentarium of services. So it's not always uh, admission to uh, an inpatient unit. Sometimes it's partial hospitalization programs where kids spend a good part of the day uh, with us getting getting uh, therapy, hmm. sometimes in-home services. There, there's a, a suite of offerings depending on the level of urgency can can be uh, deployed in these types of situations. Um, Fundamentally, um, Ryan, we also need the workforce development piece. So if we were to open uh, 20 additional inpatient beds tomorrow, um, we wouldn't be able to staff them. Um, And uh, there's just not enough behavioral health clinicians, psychologists, psychiatrists uh, in the workforce in the state of Colorado currently. So we need to think creatively about uh, those training pro- programs loan forgiveness uh, programs that can attract uh, people to the state uh, to do this very important work um, and then uh, finally the one piece i'd say is yeah. uh, the the importance of reaching these kids early and what if what if we thought expansively and creatively about the importance of behavioral health along the continuum of care and you know thought about attention to behavioral health when kids come in for checkups at 12 years old and 13 years old, and in addition to make sure they're growing well and developing well, what if we check in with them uh, to see how they're doing and how they're feeling as a, as a a primary prevention strategy? Um, We really need to rethink that uh, to get to kids very, very much earlier in in their, in in their process. So.
0: Well, I appreciate that perspective. And uh, Kate Hartman, Good luck this weekend. I understand you'll be singing at the Statue of Liberty, your first trip (laughs) to New York City. Is that right?
4: Yes, that is correct.
0: Is that going to be good for your mental health, do you think? Yes. Okay. It's
4: my favorite thing.
0: 12-year-old Kate Hartman works with Children's Hospital Colorado as an advocate for mental health. We also heard from Dr. David Brumbaugh, chief medical officer at Children's, Jenna Glover, PhD in psychology at Children's, and Kari Ecker, founder of Robbie's Hope. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC back in the next half hour. This year,
5: the NBA has named a
0: most unlikely, most valuable player. When Nikola Jokic first arrived in the NBA from Serbia, most people couldn't even pronounce his name. Well, now Jokic is the league's MVP.
4: The reason why Nikola is a great
0: player is he makes
5: everyone around him better. Passes cross-court, deflected, Dozier with the steal, give it to Jokic, he's away!
6: After a season for the record books, CPR's Vic Vela profiles the Nuggets' Nikola Jokic. Come to CPR.org for the story.
2: Okay, so let's go ahead. Let's switch partners. Let's have gentlemen move down, please.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner.
2: And walk and walk and side Close, Lorena a
0: hand. Couples are learning the foxtrot. And what's remarkable about this dance class is that it's not over video, Chad. It's in person, cheek to cheek, hand to hand. After a long, lonesome pandemic, the Denver Turnverein, the charming dance hall with German gymnastic roots, is open again.
2: It's been about a year and a half since we have all seen each other and been able to hug each other and dance and You know, we don't have to wear masks now, so it's been really fun. It was really interesting that we would see some of these people who we knew and we danced with all the time, but we forgot their names.
0: (laughs) Rhonda Ryan of Denver happens to love the Foxtrot, and after this evening's lesson, she'll stick around for the reopening dance bash.
2: I started dancing in a turn probably six years ago, and when I first started coming, I kind of was a beginner dancer, and I was really nervous to be here. And it was such a welcoming community. They just welcomed in, and people would come out, and I'd say, I'm a beginner dancer, and they still would pull me out. And it's just grown to really be a family.
0: Ryan says she loves the music as well, older music especially. Some Enchanted Evening was on the menu.
5: Who can explain?
0: but they also play more contemporary stuff. Ariana Grande and Arcade Fire were on the playlist, too. Running the music tonight is the Turnverein's president, Art Abington. He snuck away for a few minutes for a chat and told me about the first time he walked into this century-old dance hall with its 12-foot windows. He had just moved to Denver from Tulsa.
6: The very first night I was here... Scurrying and looking through my luggage, trying to find something to wear, I came to a dance here at the Denver Turnverein, and I've been here ever since. They can't get rid of me. That was in two thousand six. You, you. So you had
0: literally, like, what moved into an apartment, or you were in a hotel, or what?
6: I actually was living in somebody's basement. And what do you remember about that first night? What was the dance? Do you oh, high energy! It was Rocky Mountain Swing Dance Group, you know. And tell you what, dancing is an empty nester activity. And this is called couples dancing. you are not just jumping around on the dance floor. You know, it's somewhat structured. All right. And once you learn the rules, then you can get creative with it. So you're not always just dancing a certain pattern. And, you know, if you're raising a family and you have kids at home, well, you're doing kids activities. You're going to PTA meetings. I went through that. I had gotten divorced, you know, or the kids go away to college and they're not divorced, you know, and then what do we do? And so I was looking for friends. And I've got friends, both men and women. Sometimes I get interested in somebody who's looking for maybe someone to go out on dates or maybe they just want it to be totally platonic and they're just into dancing.
0: Art Abington told me he was getting goosebumps all evening and a catch in his throat, the thrill of seeing old friends and moving with them in unison. As head of the Denver Turnverein, Abington required dancers to show proof they'd been vaccinated.
6: If I get one email that says, oh, you guys are requiring vaccination. You're awful. I'm going to never dance in your place. I get 25 emails that say, I'm so glad you guys opened up and you're requiring vaccination.
0: Now, this was, I think, a pretty cursory search on Google Translate. But as far as I know, Turnverein means gymnastics.
6: It means athletic organization in its broadest sense. And really, you know, we still fit in with that because uh, the original Turnverein groups started in Germany in 1848. And this is
0: where your roots come from. Right. Tell me just to, uh, briefly about the roots of the Denver Turnverein.
6: Right at the same year that the Civil War ended, 1865, okay, the Denver Turnverein incorporated. And they were German immigrants that had come over from Germany, and they brought the Turnverein idea with them. Now, quite a few years went by, and in 1921, a group of investors built this grand Building. It was called the Coronado Club. That club went bust within a year. The property was put up for sale. The Denver Turnverein bought the building in 1922. This is our 100th anniversary right now.
0: What do you like about dancing in this space? Our...
6: Well, we have this grand architecture. We have these huge double-door windows. The other thing is we have one of the largest dance floors in Colorado we have almost a 5,000 foot square dance floor. And then we built a second dance floor downstairs. We have about a 3,000 foot dance floor downstairs.
0: How important, you know, there's so much discussion art these days about diversity and inclusion. How important is it for you that the dance reach communities that might not have historically?
6: Right, and that's a concern to us. Because I'll just be quite frank, if you look around, our demographic is not that diverse right now. But we weren't always a nonprofit charity with a public mission. The, the Denver Turnvine was more or less a private club for a good part of the, of the history of this building. But we're a public charity now, and we want diversity. And we're looking for groups that want to do ethnic dancing. And I'll be quite frank, if you look around, you know, we have a small percentage, smaller than the population of the area, uh, people of color. And why wouldn't they like to dance, too? And we want to be the friendliest place in the area for dancing. That's our mission, to share dancing with the general public.
0: Victoria Nguyen drove in from Parker for the big night. She learned to dance in her native Vietnam. Her family fled communism, had dreams of moving to California.
2: Somehow we end up in Colorado, but I don't even know if Colorado exists on the map. <laughs> oh, I wanted to go to California because a big Asian community there. But I, what it, it wasn't so bad. It actually, Colorado is, is home now, so I'm, classes end up that way. I love Colorado.
0: What yeah. Did you, I, I imagine that during the pandemic, you must have missed the dance. Did you do any of the online classes? Oh, or? yeah,
2: definitely. You know, I missed the dance. Yeah, you know, I bought a bundle of video and I practice in in my basement <laughs> where I didn't have to wear a mask and I make sure I wait until I fully vaccinated. So
0: now when you would do this in your basement, would yeah. you do it alone?
2: No, I had I had my dancing partner.
0: The Denver Turnverein was able to stay on its feet in the pandemic with the help of emergency grants and loans. And the reopening is also a return for its staff, including bar manager Marina Perednia.
4: I have been here long enough. And this is sort of a, it's a close community that if I don't have their drink on the bar by the time they get to the window, I
6: don't know them.
0: This reporter can confirm that Parednia's specialty, a Long Island iced tea, is formidable and it might just help loosen you up if you're reluctant to dance, which one attendee told me is just walking to music. What's my cat thinking? What's going on between my dog's ears? Questions pet owners have no doubt asked themselves, and partly why the novel Other People's Pets is such a delicious read. It is also a finalist for a Colorado Book Award. Author R.L. Mazes, who lives in Niwot, writes about an animal empath. Her protagonist feels in her body what animals feel, which makes her a stellar student in veterinary school, until she asked to drop out for a family crisis. I spoke with author R.L. Mazes in March. Lala is your main character. Help us understand her empathic abilities.
7: So she can feel what animals feel in her body. So, for example, if there's a dog who has arthritis in their hip, Lala will feel pain in her hip. But it's not only bad parts. If somebody is, including her, is scratching, a cat under the chin, she will feel the pleasure. So she can really feel both their emotions, good and bad, and their physical sensations, good and bad.
0: And does she need to be near an animal to feel that? Is proximity important?
7: That's generally true. She does need to be near them. Although if an animal is extremely close to her, she might feel them at a distance.
0: That is, if they have a real relationship, a real Correct. bond. Right. Yeah. Give me an example of how this appears in the book.
7: So the first time her father takes her, you'll learn in the book that her father is teaching her to be a burglar. That's what he is. And so when she's young, he teaches her how to burgle homes. And the first time he takes her, there's a dog growling at the door. And he thinks, oh dear, we have to rob another house. But she says, no, no, give me a chance. And she is able just by speaking to that dog to calm it down, to communicate to the dog that they're not a threat to the dog. Of course, at that point, her father thinks, oh my God, she is this great weapon that he can use to rob houses.
0: Yes. She becomes quite the asset to someone who is a, would we say, professional burglar? Yes. Yes. Her father is named Zev. And this is the environment that Lala is raised in. So tell me how this idea of an animal empath occurred to you, writing a character who has these abilities.
7: You know, I was writing Lala, and I just thought when I first was writing her, I thought she just would love animals and be close to animals and find them a comfort because her mother's abandoned the family and her father is not necessarily the best father. And I thought she'd, of course, be close to certain animals and they'd give her comfort and And it would be a comfort to the reader, too, to see she's not so isolated that she has these animals who she cares about and who care about her. But as I'm writing it, it occurs to me, oh, my God, she can actually feel what these animals feel in her body. And that was such an exciting moment for a writer because I thought it's going to be so much fun to imagine her moving throughout the world encountering all these different animals and knowing what they feel in their bodies. And I also thought it would be amazing for readers also to almost see the world through the eyes of animals by reading about Lala.
0: Have you ever met an actual animal empath?
7: I have not. um, (laughs) Certainly not in the way that Lala is an empath, meaning that she has this magical ability. I have occasionally heard of people who are animal communicators, who say that if you're having trouble with an animal, they can speak to the animal and understand what the problem is, let you know what the problem is, and then communicate back to the animal what the solution is going to be. I don't know if I believe that that exists or not, but I know that there are people who, who consider themselves animal communicators. Um, but I've never heard of anyone who's an animal empath like Lala.
0: Well, now, this is interesting. It, it is possible that you don't believe in the powers of your own protagonist, in real, like, if it were real life.
7: Well, this is, the, this is a book, and it's a book of magical realism. So I don't know if there could be a character like Lala in real life. Um, I'd be open to it, but I've never met anyone like her.
0: This does make her a rather talented veterinary student, doesn't it?
7: Yeah, it's a, the perfect talent to have to become a veterinary student and a veterinarian, because one of the really hard things about being a veterinarian is that they can't tell you where it hurts. Now, of course, if you're a good veterinarian, you can manipulate their arms and legs and torso if an animal's in pain, and you can figure out where it hurts. But for her to actually be able to feel it in her body will allow her to be a remarkable veterinarian.
0: This is so obvious, and yet I hadn't really considered it. But the the difference between a veterinarian and a a doctor of human patients, just the inability to ask them where it hurts or to say, what is your pain on a scale of one to ten? You know, that's just a whole different world that they have to become accustomed to. R.L. Mazes, people are animals. How is Lala at reading people? She's terrible at reading people, (laughs) she's just
7: awful. You know, and maybe it's because she's been abandoned by her mom, so she has some trauma around dealing with people. And maybe because Zev, her father, isn't the best father, she can't read people at all. And so that's actually not so good for a veterinarian because part of the job of a veterinarian is to be empathic toward the parents of the animals that come in, too, and to understand that they're worried, that they're upset, and to help them deal with their own feelings when their animals are not feeling well. But she's not good at that part of it. And, and part of the challenge in the book is for her to learn how to be empathic toward people. That's where she needs to grow.
0: So I mentioned that this novel is also about a family crisis involving Lala's dad, Zev. You mentioned that he is a burglar by trade. He uses the persona, the alter ego of a locksmith. This is, in a way, how he gets access into people's homes. And obviously, the skills of a locksmith come in handy if you're going to enter a home maliciously. And he's been a burglar since Lala was little, even pulled her out of school because he was afraid that she might blow his cover. Let me have you read a passage from the book, Other People's Pets, about the first time. Her dad, Zev, brings her on a job. It's the winter of 1999, and I'll say this book is set in Colorado in the fictional town of Longview, which seems a bit reminiscent of Longmont to me, given that you live in Niwot. R.L., what do you think?
7: True enough. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) True enough. Um, So the one thing I'll say about this passage is that it's set when Lala is eight, and most of the book takes place when she's an adult. After Lala quiets the barking dog during her first job with her father, Zev thrusts his chin toward a security decal in the window. You see that, he whispers? Fake. Real ones have the alarm company name. A blue backpack hangs from her father's shoulder. When no one answers the doorbell, they go around back. Zev pulls a crowbar from under his coat and shows Lala how to insert it above the lock he pries open the door, splintering the frame. Worry buzzes through Lala's arms and legs, sits like a helmet on her head. She longs to run, but is afraid to leave Zev. Breaking into a house seems wrong, but how can it be if her father is doing it? In the master bedroom, Zev goes through drawers carefully, dropping items into his backpack. An iris setter observes them from his bed in a corner of the room, chin on his paws. Lala scratches his ears, then stations herself next to a window that faces the front yard, as if by watching for trouble she can keep it away. A mail carrier walks up the street, shoving envelopes through slots. Will the woman notice something amiss? Hear them inside through the narrow opening? Lala tugs her father's sleeve and points. Putting a finger to his lips, Zev continues searching the room. The mail carrier stitches a path from house to house, her cart scrabbling along the sidewalk. Lala peeks from behind the curtain, fingers clenching the red muslin. When the woman turns up the walk, Lala wraps herself in the fabric. Chunk, chunk, comes the mail. Frightened, Lala wets herself, the first time since she was a baby. In the car, soggy and cold, Lala hides her condition from her father. At a truck stop, Zev breathes on the diamond, fogging it. See how it doesn't stay misty? That's how you know it's real, he says. When Lala barely nods, Zev shoves the diamond in his pocket. She could at least pretend to be interested, he thinks, after insisting he take her with him.
0: Hmm. Lala reflects there that this seems wrong. She knows even, as a young child, that there's something off about this way of life. She grows up to become a deeply kind person towards animals. I think she's vegetarian or vegan.
7: Maybe she's vegan.
0: She's vegan. She probably thinks of herself as a good person. And yet for reasons that we won't explain, so I don't give too much away. She has to resort to the burglar life later on. And it just got me thinking, RL, about what does it mean to be a good person? Is someone who's kind to animals, but traumatizes people by breaking into their homes, is that a kind person? Is that a good person?
7: Yeah, you know, that's a complex person. And I think when we write about characters, we want them to be complex. And that's because human beings are complex. We are all complex. Um, None of us is all good or all bad. And so it's interesting to explore those kinds of issues on the page. So, you know, I would say that she has some growing to do. She definitely does some things that readers will take issue with. Uh, She does some things that I, as a writer, might even take issue with, but that I feel the character would do, at least at this point in her life.
0: Have you been burgled?
7: Yes, unfortunately. Um, When I was growing up, And I grew up in Queens, New York. Uh, My home was burgled numerous times. And one time I was in it. Oh, it was, yes. (laughs) Um, It was a Saturday night, and I was with a friend, and we were the only ones home. And I heard someone coming up the stairs, and I said, Hi, Dad. Because I just thought my father had come home and, you know, he wasn't the type to say, honey, I'm home. He would just come home quietly. So we heard that. So I said that, but then I heard, well, I don't know if I can say this word on the radio. <laughs> um, I heard, right. oh, darn, <laughs> there's somebody here. And um, footsteps running down the steps. So we ran into my parents' room, which was the only room uh, that, on the second floor that had a lock. And we locked the door. And I called 911 and I shouted until the police came, the police are coming, the police are coming. They did come after five or 10 minutes and the burglars had left, which was great. Uh, They had taken some, yes, they had taken certain things. And that wasn't the only time. Our house was burgled so many times that eventually there were bars on the doors and windows of our house, which was really awful. Um, So I'm sure that made an impression on me and came out in this book. I will say, though, that I was the victim of burglaries. And yet I decided to write about the perpetrators. And I did that because I thought it would be more interesting. I thought it would be so interesting to get into the psychology of burglars, to research and understand why they do what they do and how they do it. You know, what are their techniques? Not only that, but I also think, Victims are a little less interesting to write about than people who are being active. So I thought the burglars, Lala and her father, would be more interesting characters in that sense.
0: I'm curious if this taught you, this exercise, anything about protecting yourself from burglars or, or robbers, for that matter?
7: Well, certainly from burglars, because one of the things that burglars we'll look for is a home that has very thick brush around the home to hide behind while they're breaking into a door or even at the side if there's a lot of thick bushes then they can hide kind of behind those while they're breaking in through a window and people won't see them so it's not a good idea to have thick bushes in front of your door or next to a side window I I learned that I also definitely learned that a well-lit house is less likely to be one that a burglar wants to get into. Again, too easy to see them. Someone passing by will be able to see them and identify them. One of the best protections against uh, burglary is a dog. Uh, Not in Lala's case, but in general, a burglar who hears a dog barking would rather go to the neighbor. So maybe not so nice for your neighbor, but in fact, it is a very good way to protect yourself.
0: Thank you so much for being with us.
7: Thank you so much.
0: Novelist R.L. Mazes, her book Other People's Pets, is a Colorado Book Award finalist. Winners will be announced later this month. And we chose her book a while back for our virtual reading circle.
3: You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this.
0: Now we have our next pick for Turn the Page. It's by pastor and counselor Paula Stone Williams. Her new memoir is about walking in other people's shoes. Williams may be best known for her
8: TED Talks. I knew from the time I was three or four years of age, I was transgender. In my naivete, I thought I got to choose. I thought a gender fairy would arrive and say, okay, the time has come. But alas, no, gender fairy arrived. So I just lived my life. I didn't hate being a boy. I just knew I wasn't one.
0: Williams writes about all she lost and learned and gained after her transition at age 60.
8: There is no way a well-educated white male can understand how much the culture is tilted in his favor. There's no way he can understand it because it's all he's ever known. And all he ever will know. And conversely, there's no way that a woman can understand the full import of that. Because being a female is all she's ever known. She might have an inkling that she's working twice as hard for half as much. But she has no idea how much harder it is for her than it is for the guy in the Brooks Brothers jacket in the office across the hall. I know. I was that guy. And I thought I was one of the good guys. Sensitive to women. Egalitarian.
0: William's book is called As a Woman. Get a hold of a copy and join us the evening of Wednesday, June 30th for a virtual discussion. You can ask the author questions. We'll record the whole thing to air on Colorado Matters. As a Woman. Tickets are free at cpr.org slash turn the page. cpr.org slash turn the page and that's the show for today with thanks to our team
5: carl bielek
2: Allie budner
8: anthony cotton
2: andrea dukakis michelle fulcher
8: matt hers michael hughes
2: carla jimenez avery
1: lill
8: pedro lumbrano
1: patrice mondragon shane rumsey
8: and
0: i'm ryan warner this is colorado matters from cpr news and krcc